This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation about quantum computing with IBM CEO Arvind Krishna. Hi, everybody. I'm Harry McCracken, technology editor for Fast Company, and I am excited to be here with Arvind Krishna, the CEO of IBM. We have a lot to talk about from what's new and next for IBM to AI to quantum computing, so let's dive right in. Hi, Arvind. How are you? Harry, first, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you, talking to you again, and it's always a pleasure to also spend time with the Fast Company audience. Hopefully, we'll do it in person sometime, but, but virtual is, is great, too. Um, you have been the CEO of IBM for about a year and a half. That's correct. Uh, April of but 2020. That, but that's after 30 years as an IBMer? That, that's right. I have often said, and I think I've said it in other forums, I bleed blue. What, uh, what was your first job at the company? I joined IBM in the research uh, division working on what I would today, it sounds quaint to say, but computer networking. And one of the first things I built at IBM was a way to have what is called mobile networks. Today you'd call it Wi-Fi, where you can walk around. And I remember walking up and down the stairs with a laptop, with uh, dongles coming off of it, trying to make sure you were connected all the time. And it was considered to be almost remarkable at the time. And today it's taken for granted. And you eventually led research for the entire company, among other things, before taking on your current role. I did, albeit that was 25 years after the story we just talked about, <laughs> and about five or six years ago. That's right. IBM is a little bit unusual in that you have 100% name recognition over the arc of time. You, you might be the best-known technology company of them all, but um, I think that if you ask average people to explain what IBM does. Some of them might struggle a little bit. So I was hoping you can get us going by talking about what IBM's current focus is and moving forward, what areas the company is concentrating on. Happy to do that, Harry. Look, part of the reasons why you say we are an iconic company, because I'll use that as a shorthand for you're well-known and everyone knows your name and your brand. The reason we have survived over 100 years in a place that is as fast moving as technology is you do have to reinvent what you do. I mean, I'm not going to spend time on the history, but going from uh, tabulating machines to electronic calculators to the first semiconductor-based computers to today's day of hybrid cloud and AI, and we'll come back and talk more about that, is a remarkable series of uh, revolutions, not just evolutions. I think what we do today that we're best known for First of all, we should acknowledge to your audience, we are a B2B company. We largely sell to enterprises and governments, not to, not to consumers. And I say, say that with a little bit of a wink, because if any of you use the weather app on your smartphones, that is actually uh, comes from IBM. Now, uh, what we do is we really uh, help uh, businesses consume technology, and we really help businesses leverage technology to make themselves better. And I think actually that has stood the test of time from 
helping the Social Security Administration figure out people's income so they know what to pay them. That really made society work better. To today, when we help payments happen, whether authorizing payments with no fraud at a credit card company or helping the Federal Reserve move trillions of dollars through the economy each day to airline reservations. So we really help uh, put together the computing fabric that helps a lot of society work. No, we don't make the gadgets anymore that are in your hand. We don't necessarily make what's in your home, but we might actually be helping how those bits uh, on the important stuff flow through the economy. I think that helps define what we do. So we are more embedded in the fabric than in your face as far as computing is concerned. Look, technology, I think the last year and a half has shown us, and by the last year and a half, I don't mean my tenure as CEO, I really mean the pandemic, that computation, uh, remote access is really integral to what and how we function. And as you think about that, the two technologies that help power that are around cloud and artificial intelligence. And so we have picked those because we believe there is massive opportunity there's a trillion dollar market, and that is such a big number, you've got to break it down into chunks. But, um, but those are the two tectonic forces of where we are today. And then I'll sort of say, and going down the road, quantum computing, which I think is going to show us that Moore's law is alive and well, albeit as a different law, uh, some kind of quantum law. And I do believe the power of blockchain to help build more trust is still an unfulfilled promise that is uh, in front of us. You've uh, been making some transactions to focus the company, um, one of which was acquiring Red Hat, which um, happened uh, a few years ago. And I know you were involved in that decision. Can you, you talk about how that's helped uh, take IBM where you wanted to go at that point and where you want to go today? So let's talk a little bit about the world of hybrid cloud, because to understand the motivation is then important and it puts Red Hat in that context. So. Is our average uh, enterprise client going to use one or more public clouds? Well, heterogeneity, uh, sovereign laws, economics dictate they're going to use multiple public clouds. Are they all going to completely give up what's on their own infrastructure? Of course not. When latency is important, you're going to do things close to where the data is, uh, is and is being produced. Also, you're not going to go rewrite everything. The average enterprise uses three, 4,000 applications. So you're going to use some of them where they are. So you got private, you got multiple public. That's the environment that I think they're all going to be in, our clients as well as governments. If that's the environment, is there a place for a platform that goes across those? Not that you do things distinctly and differently in every one of those, but in a common way, for the stuff that maybe requires more flexibility or may, you may not know where it'll be two or three years from now. Red Hat offered a great advantage for us to build a platform of that nature. I think your entire audience would agree. I think Linux has become the de facto operating system for the future. It's what all clouds are built on. It's what uh, people are leveraging more and more. It's got the leading share. By the way, coming from open source with the security and transparency of open source, is really, really important to how Linux gets built. You then go on to having a DevSecOps platform that can traverse all of those environments. And so having Red Hat OpenShift also from Red Hat playing to that is really critical and a host of other technologies. So Red Hat gave us an immediate step up in how we could be 
and provide a hybrid cloud platform and really partner up with all of the public cloud providers. That's why we are such great partners with Microsoft, with Amazon, in terms of what they do on the public cloud, but we also bring all these capabilities then to private. But Harry, I can't help but be a little bit financial and a little bit proud of what we have done. Red Hat coming in, um, a little bit over $3 billion of a company, uh, growing in the low teens. We have kept it growing in the upper teens since then, um, uh, probably crossing $5 billion now in revenue, and uh, such great talent and such great adoption by the clients on those technologies. So it's helped reshape the company. It's helped put us square in the heart of the hybrid cloud platform strategy for our clients, and it's been a great uh, return for our investors, all of it. You are also now getting ready to sharpen your focus even more by spinning off part of IBM. Tell us a little bit about that. So, so going on with the hybrid cloud theme, so it's clear that, as I said, cloud and AI are really important for clients as they think about what to do going forward. So as they think about it, what comes to the mind of an average client going through this journey? You begin to think about which application should I run where? How do I really make my application modern? Do I run it on containers? Do I make it have microservices? Which other things does it connect with? Those are all APIs. There may be some other services you call over the internet. You may in turn leverage, uh, just to name some examples, maybe Microsoft, maybe Salesforce, maybe Adobe, maybe SAP, and you're interconnecting that world. In all of that, the infrastructure comes after all that. So as opposed to in a 20-year-ago world, people thought about that infrastructure, they made that decision, then they said, now which applications do I run? That decision is reversed. If that decision is reversed, these businesses are best run optimally, distinctly, as opposed to all together. And because those decisions are happening in the way I described, it's best to unlock value for everybody to run these as independent companies. And so that is what made our decision to spin off our managed infrastructure services business into a new company called Kindrel. We expect that to happen in the fourth quarter. That's what we've been saying throughout. And we are well on track uh, towards doing that. That'll, by the way, sharpen the focus. So IBM will stay focused on hybrid cloud, artificial intelligence. Kindrel will remain focused on providing the best infrastructure services for clients. And by that, we mean physical data centers, storage, compute, uh, network, security, and those things. And they will provide those services. IBM will focus on uh, the other uh, pieces that I described. Um, as you mentioned, um, you became CEO just shortly after the pandemic began and remote work was a necessity. Um, the pandemic is not over, but we're at least at a point where we're thinking about the future of hybrid work when it's a choice rather than something that we're forced into. I have to say that you have some of the nicest workspaces I've ever been to all over the world. Um, I've been to Almaden and Yorktown uh, and seen all these people working together. But I wanted to ask you what IBM's strategy is moving forward in terms of how much of that work will continue to be done in person and whether the fact that you've been a global company for so long, which I imagine has involved a lot of virtual collaboration for many years, has, has helped you figure out you know, where the future is leading. Yeah, so Harry, a lot to unpack in that question. I got to begin first by talking about, as you said, I became CEO in April of 2020. 
and I was elected by our board to the position in uh, late January of 2020. When I got uh, named uh, in January of 2020, I don't think we were talking about the pandemic at all. I remember the week before that I had been out in Davos. You'd expect in hindsight that we, there should have been a lot of talk about a pandemic happening at that point only in Far East Asia. Nothing, not even a whisper, not even a hallway conversation. And so it is interesting that we went from there to in the second week of February, people began to whisper, hey, something funny is happening out there in Wuhan. By the way, it had happened there six weeks ago, but even in today's day and age, it took six weeks for the, for the news to get a sort of momentum. By late February, we were all wondering, okay, this is, this is going to happen everywhere. This is not just somewhere. And by the middle of March, we were locked down. Now, to the point you made, yes, because we are so used to people collaborating, we have teams that will get together with a banking client in London, not so random an example, composed of teams from London, maybe from Brazil, maybe from India, maybe from the United States. So we are used to a lot of collaboration. So we were able to, within a weekend, literally move to working remotely and collaborating virtually. Now, to, to then go forward, I have been pretty public in saying, trying to predict exactly what's going to be the eventual answer, I think is a fool's errand. But some things let's take down, which I will actually give you some predictions on. One, by and large, the current system of work, I'm going to be a little bit facetious. You know, when the industrial age started, there would be a bell that would ring from a clock tower or a siren would go off or a whistle would go off loud enough to be heard for a couple of miles and everybody would go into work and then the whistle would go off eight or 10 or 11 hours later, everybody would go back to their uh, homes, typically within walking distance. Oh, I got tongue in cheek. That's kind of like the mode we work in like even today. Okay, it's not a siren, it's your alarm bell and you're trudging, maybe not walking, but taking a subway or a train or a car ride. And, you know, a two-mile walk would be 40 minutes in those days. It's a 40-minute uh, commute in a suburb nowadays. We haven't really changed that much. I think this has been a wonderful for us to all sit back and say, what should be the mode of how we work together? I fundamentally believe that some coming together is still going to be critical for serendipity, for creativity, for really getting your critical thinking honed. That's a lot easier to happen in person than virtually. I think virtual for one-on-one -on -one interactions like we're doing works great. Virtual for when it's 10 people, it's actually quite hard to make sure they're all participating and you're getting the body language, you're getting the read, you're getting the full participation, you're getting the full energy that you get in person. So my prediction would be, we will still come together when there's creativity, when there's collaboration, when there is team building and culture building required. However, there's other work that can happen remotely, perfectly, effectively, perfectly, uh, with uh, probably even more productivity than coming into the office. Well, that's hybrid work. So I think that there'll be a certain percentage. I can't predict for you whether it'll be 10, 20, or 30% of people at a given company who are always remote. Then I think the remaining, whether it's 70 or 80%, will come in, but not necessarily for eight or 10 hours a day, every single day, but maybe for some amount of time. I'll call it half the time just for the sake of, a, uh, of something which is variable, maybe it's 80%. I actually will go further. 
I think there are some set of people who derive a lot of energy, who derive a lot of energy from the workplace. They're going to be in all the time. You know, whether it's people in inner cities, whether it's people with other distractions at home, whether people just draw social energy from people. They're going to come into work all the time. There's another set, I said that 10, 20, 30. They're, the nature of their work may allow them to be fully remote all the time. And so that's those two extremes. And then there is the 30, 40 in the middle who come in sometimes, but not always. And that would be my view of thinking how this is going to play out over the next couple of years. Look, we still have another year at least. Uh, you know, in some places we're getting into vaccinations. I live here in the New York City area and the city is opening up. Now, workplaces are not yet full, but you know, uh, we had the US Open, the tennis tournament a couple of weeks ago. Well, there were tens of thousands of people there. It was pretty packed. And uh, I think touch wood, it seems to have gone fine. So that gives you confidence that, you know, life's getting back to normal. Now, we know that in different parts of the country here, it's not the same thing. In other countries, there's still a issue. So there's probably another six to 12 months of some uncertainty as we figure out our way all this. But I'm going to sort of close my answer to it, Harry, by saying, you got to first look at the science. And I acknowledge the science is still evolving here. You got to look at what the health authorities say. Then you got to look at what the work requires and what employees are comfortable doing. You got to take all those into account. And there may not be a single answer for everybody. There may be a few. But I do think that people get so much energy from being together that that's an important part of a workplace. And how much of uh, this will be IBM laying down the law for everybody versus the individuals within the organization getting to play a role in, in figuring out what makes sense for each of them individually? It's always got to be both. So you can't really lay down the law. I mean, we are not a government and we are not living in a, I'll call it a single party state. So we can try to dictate, but if no employee wants those conditions, then you're going to have no employees and hence no business. So the other side of it is, if bottom-up, everybody comes up with exactly their own but a different answer, that's chaos. So you got to put some structure into it. So we put some rules into place right now. In the United States, there's enough vaccination. So we have said uh, things like, look, in the United States, if a client needs it or you're coming to an IBM workplace, you will be vaccinated right now, but you can work remotely if you don't want to be. Uh, when should a team come together? If each individual picks a distinct hour when they're never together, then what's the point of coming in to collaborate? So maybe your, your team management or your team leader needs to decide when is the time everybody gets together. And I'm just taking some simple examples that way. I do think that a bit of structure from the government, uh, hopefully federal, but maybe state, will be useful. Are we going to insist upon vaccinations? Uh, I think that's a, that's a good sign for right now. Now, there are exceptions. There are always health and religious exceptions. Or if the work is remote, then those are exceptions. But I do think that we're going to have to come both ways. Some top-down rules, but maybe not too overly rigid, and some bottom-up in terms of what people want. So uh, lay down the law, I think we'll reserve for senators and congressmen. They can lay down the law. The rest of us will provide some guidelines and guardrails and hope that that works for us. Let's talk about AI. Uh, one of the most uh, memorable moments is still when Watson won Jeopardy about a decade ago. That, that was a real eye-opener for the world. And Watson went on to become not just a commercial service, 
but a whole suite of services aimed at tackling different problems for different types of organizations. Can you get us up to speed a little bit on what Watson is today and what, what the most important areas are right now and also moving forward? Sure. So, hi, let's first talk a little bit about the opportunity. So I think we'd all agree that we are inundated by data. I remember, this must have been, I'm going to date myself, half a decade ago, maybe a decade ago, when somebody was talking about predictions of 45 zettabytes of data, and the audience kind of looked and said, you're being ridiculous. I mean, like, forget 45. There's not even one zettabyte. How can you store it all? Now we're talking about 175 zettabytes, and soon it's going to be with another three zeros after that, right? How do you make sense of all this data? The only technology we know that can go get insights from data at that scale is artificial intelligence. So to go back to your uh, Jeopardy example, why I think it's so imprinted on all our memories, and that's beyond people who know IBM and follow IBM, is that the idea that a computer could do a general question and answer session by reading and in some sense comprehending, but let me put that in quotes, uh, all that it read, because there, well, there's contradictions in what you read. If you go read articles on the internet, they'll contradict each other. So you can't, can't just say, hey, I got the answer in what I read. There's going to be contradictions. How do you make sense? Which one is more authoritative? Which one is less? Which is really in the context of the question? I think was eye-opening for all of us. So I think it brought artificial intelligence kind of screaming from the realm of science fiction into reality. That then unlocked all our imaginations. What can we do to really make use of this in the business world. And the estimates, these are not ours, by the way, these are third-party estimates, is that artificial intelligence deployed in real life could unleash as much as $16 trillion of productivity by 2030. So you take the business imperative of the $16 trillion of productivity, you take the market in terms of where the technology is evolving, all of these technologies, whether we talk about deep learning or recursive learning and uh, adversaries and all of that together is really going to get unleash these powerful technologies to solve business problems. So where are we today? So IBM, we have, I think, 40,000 uh, different client projects uh, that are either completed or underway. And I think of some examples. If I think about what we did with CBS Health and helping them on their COVID-19 vaccines, where a very large number, over 70% of the calls were handled by a Watson agent. And people were happy with the outcome because, you know, I'll say tongue in cheek, a machine delivered agents never get angry, never get cranky, are always calm, and they scale infinitely. So you don't need to worry about wait times. What more could you want? Or if I think about how Ernst & Young uses um, the Watson technology to really help them on due diligence for M&A, much better answer because, again, the technology doesn't get tired. It can read all of the input and uh, flag what's important. Or how Citibank uses uh, Watson technology on how their auditors get their own task internally made easier. These are such great examples of how the technology gets unleashed from sort of a B2C example to a really robust consulting example to a banking example. But we can go across so many different industries. And I'm so excited. I think we're at the beginning of the AI journey, nowhere near the middle and nowhere near the end. This is going to unleash so much around automation and productivity 
that that lets people then focus on the much higher value task, I think that's what people aspire to, both the person who's getting the service and the people uh, doing the service. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Healthcare applications like radiology are, at least potentially, one of the most exciting applications of, of this technology. Um, can you talk a little bit about where you are in, in that continuum, from that being research to it being everywhere, and, and whether you've made as much progress as quickly as you hope to? Look, healthcare is a massive part of our society and of the economy. If I remember, healthcare is 3.6, maybe 3, depending on who you ask, trillion dollars of the U.S. economy. So that's 15% to maybe 20% of the economy. So if you can build, bring techniques that improve efficacy, that take out uh, some of the time, that really improve uh, client satisfaction, that's a great opportunity. Now that said, as you know, watching the vaccines and the vaccinations over the last year and a half has all taught us, has made every layman an expert on healthcare, but you also want to be very, very careful with the FDA approving every single protocol, with panels of expert doctors agreeing to what makes sense and what doesn't. So the very nature of anything applied to healthcare is going to make it uh, both more careful, I think for the right reasons, but slower to bring into the mainstream than some other areas. By the way, as I say that, I very much agree with what uh, the EU has been doing around AI regulation. They have an expert group there. I think they call it the expert users group. And they recommend that you should look at the risk associated with AI use cases. And I think they put them in four buckets. Healthcare is at the top one, meaning you should be the most cautious. They begin at the base with, okay, if you're going to make a recommendation, I'm going to use my example. You've got to recommend a book to someone to read. You don't need to be that careful. If you make the wrong recommendation, okay, fine. You just bought a book you didn't like. That's about it. Then you go up to where there is some implication to when there is even more. And then finally you get healthcare, self-driving cars. They kind of end up at the topmost because mistakes there could cost a person's life. And so it's an area I'm still very excited about, but I think that it is by its very nature going to go much slower towards mainstream adoption than some other areas. That leads us nicely into another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, that for, for all the ways AI can make life better, um, there's also a lot of risk involved. Uh, it can be biased. It can introduce privacy implications. Uh, it can just be inaccurate in some cases. And I know that IBM is one of the companies that, that has been and, and will be doing an enormous amount of the, of the heavy lifting of bringing AI to the world, has, has been thinking about these issues for quite a while. Can you talk a little bit about how you're approaching them and your general philosophies for how we can make sure that, that the bad stuff does not overwhelm all that's good? So we, we are very grateful that whether it's the World Economic Forum who invites us to participate in these work groups or the EU where we participate or in, here in the United States with NIST and with various uh, efforts that are there we participate, we also fund university work, and we work with academia on these topics. But the topic that you're raising is what are the ethics on the use of AI? I'll use that word in a loose sense. And there are people who work on that subject in a very precise way, so I'm not trying to uh, make it sound too simplistic because it's not a simple topic. But the way I think that uh, uh, our audience here will understand this 
AI is wonderful at learning from data. We call the training data and data, and I'll come back to the privacy implications that you raised in a moment. When you learn from data, then the best data to use is the historical data we have. So if we learn from that data, and let's suppose the, the technology is perfect, great. We will now perfectly reproduce every single bias and every single mistake that people made in the past. Okay, that's a problem. So how do you get around those? So you have to begin to put watchdogs on it to understand what are the biases? What are the things that may be enshrined in law that you should not have a bias on? So you got to get into how do you have control sets? How do you understand the bias? How do you correct for the bias? A little bit like I was trained as an engineer a long time ago, longer than I'd like to admit. And in many areas of engineering, you talk about pre-bias filters. They're actually not meant to introduce bias. They're meant to actually get rid of bias. But as engineers will sort of tell you, well, a bias, getting rid of the biases, you're also introducing a bias on the raw data. So, so sort of some interesting wordplay there. But you have to go do all that. So we fundamentally believe, try to make technology explainable. Try to make sure that you're watching for bias. What's a simple example? Should there be a bias on gender or not? Should there be what? Should the number of women approved for insurance be the same as the number of men? Seems to be the case. So you can watch for that, and you can say if it's drifting, then that's a problem. Or how about on age? Or how about on ethnicity? We can go on and on on all the examples that are enshrined in law. But if you go look at historical data, for example, on loans being approved, you'll find certain ethnicities are more often denied than others. Well, okay, that means our training data is not perfect. But you can begin to find ways around it, and we want to work on all that. We've got to work on all that along with academia, along with industry. It's not for us alone. But these are really important topics of why you're raising that. The privacy issue comes about, by the way, if you use a lot of data for training, well, there is no way around it. Elements of what's in that data will make its way out. And so that's the privacy threat we have. So then again, how do you anonymize the data before you even enter the training so you don't actually create a privacy issue are all examples that we all have to work on together. All that said, I'm so excited by the fact that there is such a massive opportunity for AI to make all our lives better that uh, we can't uh, forego the technology. But as I used in earlier examples, certain use cases, maybe in healthcare, let's be more cautious, but maybe for our consumer technologies, it's ready now. What kind of role um, should legislation play in addressing some of these issues versus companies like IBM figuring them out on your own and, and uh, getting it right without the help of government? I think it's a collaboration. I think that we should work on these technologies, we should work on approaches, we should put our points of view forward, and we tend to do that. That said, no company can ever replace the role of government for policy and legislation. And so when we get to policy and legislation, we have held a very strong view. There should be precision regulation. So not blunt instrument regulation. I mean, it doesn't help anybody for governments to say, you cannot do AI. That's blunt. I mean, okay, all you're going to do is concede that some other nation which allows it is going to then run away with an economic and competitive advantage. That's not good for us in terms of the society we live in. So you, but then you might say, you got to look at these use cases or you must explain what you're doing. You must maybe publish the data set, not, not the actual data, but just what kind of data you use to train something. These are all examples, but you need to work collaboratively. Is it with NIST to form a standard, or is it with, uh, with uh, Congress? 
Congress people, I'll say congressmen and women, in terms of what legislation should be put forward. Uh, we'd like to work with them to, in terms of seeing what goes forward. Um, I go back to the famous example of the internet. Why is there so much e-commerce? Because uh, Congress enacted a law which said, hey, if there is a fraudulent credit card transaction, your limit is only so much. And everybody said, yep, that's the fine limit. I can live with it. Above that, the institutions must take care of it. Wow, that unleashed the world we live in today. So legislation and regulations can be powerful, not always an enemy, but they need to be precise and they need, don't, shouldn't be overly broad because that then allows us to make progress. I wanted to make sure that we devote sufficient time to quantum computing because that's so important to IBM's future. Uh, this is not an easy thing to understand and it's not easy to explain briefly to lay people in a way that makes sense. But I'm gonna ask you to do that anyway. Can you talk a little bit about what it is or at least on the very highest level and why it is so different from computing as we've known it from the very start? Yeah. So Maybe I'll motivate it, uh, uh, Harry, through an example. That is maybe the simplest way to, uh, to denote the power. Look, I know not all everybody in the audience, but at least I am a caffeine drinker. I love my cup of coffee. I love a cup of tea. So I'm partial to both. Why does the caffeine molecule work? We know that caffeine is the thing in there that gets people going, that stimulates you, that gets you awake, that gets you going. Why does it work? And actually, nobody knows the answer. Even at uh, molecules that have 50 to 100 electrons, which doesn't seem that large, you can draw them on a piece of paper. A classical computer, aka a supercomputer, to try and understand how the caffeine molecule works, would be about a third the size of this planet. Well, okay, I don't think we're quite going to build a computer that size. And you can only think of the amount of energy it would consume. So that, I rule out, not going to happen. A quantum computer, to understand that, maybe the size of this table. That's very, very appealing. And it'll take only a tiny amount of energy to run it. So I'm motivated with an example of the kind of problem a quantum computer could solve. So problems from the physical world, problems to do with materials, whether it's alloys, uh, molecules, problems to do with risk, quantum computers are going to be great at. As they get a little bit better, problems around uh, supply chains, around logistics, around optimization, around how do I save on fuel? Hmm, I talked about the caffeine molecule. How about if I try to figure out how to sequester carbon and carbon dioxide? Another problem from the physical world. So I tie it straight to sustainability. Or how about if I can grow food in the most sustainable way without dumping the earth full of urea, which is a nitrogen-based fertilizer, which by the way, from the estimates I saw, takes up a couple of percent of the world's energy to produce. Could we get better around that because quantum computers may be able to figure out how to do fertilizers without spending so much energy? Those are massive motivations. So why are we here? So Moore's law is still alive and well when it gets to how do I get more density? Moore's law is dead when it comes to am I reducing cost and being able to actually get things out cheaper and more from a price performance as opposed to just uh, density. So the only technology I'm aware we have on the horizon that can get us past that, where are we going to stop on classic digital technologies is quantum. So when it comes to quantum, the way to think about it is 
Nature, risk, all of these problems are probabilistic in nature. A digital computer works in hard zeros and ones. You're not trying to impose probability in it, you kind of blow up the state space and make it a really big problem. Then you have to collapse the answer back down. When you blow it up and it becomes so big, it's outside the scope. A quantum computer is probabilistic by nature. It kind of lives in that maybe, maybe not state. And so those problems map naturally onto a quantum computer. So 30 years ago, people debated, could you build one? So I think we are past that point. Not just us, but others have also built them. Where are we now? We are right in that two to three years before these problems and the quantum computers become really commercially scalable. So today we talk about quantum bits. So qubits is how people tend to measure. We have quantum computers with 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe going to 100 qubits. I'm saying that tongue in cheek because you've talked about our roadmap that we'll be at 100 maybe by year end. But today, let's call it we're at 60. We have over 20 of these systems sitting in our cloud, so anybody can access them. They're completely free today because they're not really of commercial use. And we commit. We're not looking at anybody's problems and IP and so on, but they can use them, real quantum computers. We put out a roadmap saying 1,000 qubits by the end of 2023. That, by the way, I think is going to solve problems that are going to make people really stand back and say, wow, you're not solving problems you just couldn't do on a normal computer. So you can see my excitement, the kinds of problems. I think it's so important for society and humankind to go solve these problems. And it is a really different kind of computing. I mean, I remember in college, quantum physics was the class that used to separate, we used to call it the engineers and the physicists, and I'm an engineer. The engineers would tend to say, this is too hard. Let the physicists go worry about it. And so you'd get this class shrinking down to where only a few people can do it. But you don't need to know quantum physics to use these machines. You're going to be able to use them using not quite standard, but a new kind of programming technique. And so that's our goal, to make it accessible, to make it usable, and to bring it within the realm of uh, most humans. Tell us a little bit about the, the new areas of expertise which IBM has had to develop to do all the research you've done to date that you wouldn't have needed to do something like build a supercomputer. Well, so as we think about quantum computers, so while I stayed away from the technology, these machines uh, function at really cold temperatures. Why really cold temperatures? That allows you to control the quantum state of uh, the materials inside. That's the simplest way to think about it. But that means they're a thousand times colder than outer space. So you've got to develop technologies around cryogenics. You then don't talk to these computers using the normal techniques of how with normal computers you talk using electrical signals. Those put just way too much energy and you disturb the quantum states. So you've got to have to develop new radio frequency techniques on how do you talk to them using radio pulses. We've had to do a lot of work. All the work that was done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s on superconductivity suddenly comes into play because that's the way you control the quantum states by using superconducting circuits uh, deep down. So all the materials work to do that. Then the question arises, how do you map what kind of problems could you solve? All of a sudden, massive new areas for the mathematicians to say these are the kind of algorithms that could work. These machines are noisy by nature. I talked about them being probabilistic. A different, less kind way, maybe cruel way of describing them is to say they're really error-prone. Well, if they're really error-prone, you now got to come up with new error-correcting uh, techniques. So another 
the area where the computer scientists and mathematicians bring all of that into play. We're really coining new areas, an area called quantum information science, which may have had a couple of dozen people in it a few years ago, now has thousands of people in it, is there. So just a really quick brush across areas running from electronics to materials to superconductors to mathematics to computer science. But it's so exciting to be there at the heart of a new era. I now get a sense of what must have been like in the 40s and 50s when people were inventing semiconductors and uh, all of the uh, things we take for granted today. You mentioned that you've uh, recently published a roadmap about the progress you expect to make over the next few years. How many unknowns stand between where you are today and, and getting uh, quantum out and being kind of an everyday reality for the, for the types of applications that you mentioned as being, being the key ones? I think that the problems between us and machines that are 10 times bigger, so going from 100 to 1,000 qubits, are in the realm of engineering. Can we really get it all into one uh, cryostat? Can we get and maintain the temperatures? Can we control it using electronics? Can we get all of the circuitry working? Not easy, really hard problems, but let me call it, I don't think there's some insurmountable physics problem we haven't solved. Now, if we want to go from a thousand to a million, I think we got some physics problems we got to solve. When we connect one of these to another one, how do you connect them? Using lasers, using optics, using fiber, using radio frequency? Don't know. When you have two systems that are apart, that are sharing states somehow, are they coupled or are they independent? Can you really control them independently? So I think up to a thousand, I think, Harry, we are probably in decent shape. Really hard problems. I'm not trying to make them easy, but I think they're solvable. As we scale towards a million, I think we got some fundamental issues in error correction, control, maybe quantum physics that can rear their head. I believe they're solvable, but it's a belief. We haven't yet proven it. And so I think that there are two scale issues. Next three years, I think we've got a great path. If it's a seven or 10 year journey, I think we've got some really hard problems to, to go solve. And do you have a sense of when quantum might be an important business for IBM versus a research project or just an investment in your future? This decade. So we have asked, uh, we have asked different folks, uh, different consulting companies, different analysts, because we had our own estimate, but we were very gratified. Like uh, the Boston Consulting Group, I think, came back with an estimate that by the end of this decade, it could be worth uh, a few hundred billion in value to the problems that I described in the chemical industries, in the agriculture, risk, et cetera. So as you go back from the couple of hundred and work your way down, that means there's going to be a market worth tens to maybe 10 to 100 billion for all of us uh, technology vendors combined. That's a really attractive brand new market that's completely additive. That is not in anybody's numbers right now. And so... I'm excited. I think the latter half of this decade is going to show uh, a commercial and monetization value. And once it starts, it's going to take off like a rocket ship. It's that first billion for us collectively that'll be uh, the, I don't know whether it's two, three or five years to get there. After that, I think it'll go off at 10 times a year. Because once, let's suppose 
uh, one uh, capital markets uh, institution uses it to get a better price arbitrage on some financial instrument. Do you think everybody else will want to do it then instantly? So it'll go really fast, but you got to get to that uh, starting velocity. How much are you thinking about some of the implications of quantum, such as the fact that the world has these encryption standards that we thought were unbreakable, that a quantum computer might eventually be able to break almost instantly? Is, is now the time to figure out what, what that means? Look, Harry, I, I don't want to scare your audience. I wouldn't say it's a maybe. I think the quantum computers we're talking about in this time period, let's call it 10 years, will break today's encryption as we know it. I think it's not a, it's not a maybe. It's a will. Okay, so what do we do about it? So we've been very vocal. We should already adopt uh, encryption standards that cannot be broken by a quantum computer. By the way, those uh, technologies exist. They're computationally as effective as today's. So I would really urge uh, government and everybody else to go fast and adopt them. Uh, but we have leading-edge clients who have already th been thinking about it and have adopted for their most critical information some of those technologies. I'll just throw the word out there for the audience. Lattice encryption, people, is a great technique for post-quantum uh, encryption. Post-quantum meaning when quantum breaks encryption. But remember, if you want your data protected for 10 years, you need to put it with those techniques today. Otherwise, what you encrypt using normal today could get broken 10 years from now. And there are some things people care about that shouldn't get broken even 10 years from today. Arvind, you've given us a lot to think about. Hopefully, we'll get to check in on the progress on some of these fronts in the future. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being part of the Innovation Festival. Hi, it's been a pleasure here talking and speaking with you.